Genesis 1, we have gone through the first two verses. We're now going to put in at verse 3. And I hope, by God's will, we're going to get through the 25th verse. Um, We need to. We need to, because if we don't, I'm going to be in trouble next week in trying to teach long enough on the last portions of this, because I want to deal with the creation of man being created in the image of God. I want to dedicate one whole week to that. I think that is so vital to you and I developing a worldview and what it means to be alive in this world. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 begins a very different movement here in this narrative. Now, though Genesis, the book, and this chapter are scientifically accurate, they are not meant to be scientifically acute. It's scientifically accurate, but not scientifically acute. What I mean by that is, if the Bible, this goes for the Bible as a whole, as well as Genesis 1, if the Bible states anything about science or nature, it is correct. You you don't have to think or go and investigate, oh no, the Bible is wrong in science here and there. it's, It's going to be right in whatever it says. And it always has been. Um, if you you go, uh, there's well, no, I need to say, I can give you a list later if you would like of all the. It shows the places where science said the Bible's wrong in this, and eventually science caught up to the Bible, and the Bible is shown to be correct in its scientific fact. But it's not scientifically acute in the fact that it's a science book. So when you open Genesis one. You should not approach this chapter as a scientific presentation to uphold creation and disprove evolution. You should not look at the narrative in that light because you'll be very disappointed, A, and B, you'll be completely missing the point of this beautiful narrative. So if you're expecting to hear from me, oh, Genesis 1, yay, put down evolution, I'm not here to present creation versus evolution, I'm here to simply present what I think Genesis 1 was initially penned to promote, and that is that we have a monotheistic, transcendent, omnipotent, and creative God in contrast to the pagan mythologies that surrounded Israel at the time of this writing, namely the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Canaanites. And if you're curious about their pagan mythology, you can go online, all this stuff is free, and you can read their um, chaotic, crazy stories about how creation came into being. And basically, these stories state that creation are manifestations of these individual deities. They're little deified entities. For example, the sky would be a god, the sun would be a god, the moon would be a god. And at one time, they all came together in a great battle, and one of the greater gods prevailed and and gave order to the chaos. And so now, nature, as a god, is subdued to the greater god. For example, the Babylonians have what's called the Enuma Elish, and this is their narrative that has their creation account in it. Now, the point of this narrative, the Enuma Elish, is to elevate their chief deity, Marduk. The Babylonians had a lot of gods, but Marduk was their chief deity. And this, this epic was fabricated in order to give reason to the Babylonians to worship Marduk as the chief god over the other gods. The story goes like this. <laughs> and this, I hope this will give you an appreciation for the sublime simplicity of Genesis 1. The story goes that there was a female salt ocean named Tiamat and a male freshwater ocean named Apsu. Tiamat and Apsu came together and mated. Now, through their mating process, their offspring, their children, became the various aspects of creation, or I shouldn't call it creation because they don't see creation, but the, the various aspects of nature. They had the moon child and the sun child and the you know, vegetation child, the cheetah child, you know, all of that's how where creation came from. Well, Apsu, the male freshwater deity, 
became irritated at the noise that his offspring were making. They were interrupting his football game or something, and he got really irritated with them. So he tried to wipe them out and to kill them, but he failed. And Marduk, one of the little deities, his offspring, survived. Well, the failure of his attempt to murder his offspring made Marduk say, Okay, survivors! All the little gods that survived the slaughter, they got together and he said, let us go kill Atsu. And so they got an army and they fought with Atsu and killed him. Well, the death of Atsu made his mate, Tiamat, extremely furious. So Tiamat draws a horde of dragons together and fights against Marduk and his host of little gods. And this fierce battle ensues, and eventually, after this epic warfare, Marduk is able to prevail. He kills Tiamat, and he slices her body in half. And he takes one side of the body and spreads out the heavens, and takes the other side of the body and spreads out the earth. And then, to populate the heavens, uh, these new heavens and this earth, Marduk took some of the dirt with the blood of Tiamat's field captain, whom he slain as well, and mixed it together and made man. And man was made to serve Marduk and the other gods. And that's how the story goes. Now, I should not allow us to be ignorant in seeing there are some parallels between this Babylonian epic and the creation narrative. For example, you see chaotic waters. In the beginning, God created the earth, and the earth was without form, without void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. You see this chaotic water. And if you remember the last message we met, uh, I think two weeks ago we had our last Genesis study, we talked about how that chaotic water in verse 2 is a picture of salvation, how God emerges. Oh, well, he doesn't emerge like he was born. He just comes and shows himself powerful over this chaos and turns it into creation by filling the void and forming the chaos. So it shows that he has power over it. Well, they take the chaos idea and say, okay, well, that was the gods fighting each other. Well, when God separates the waters from the waters, as we'll see in day two, and makes the um, upper portion of water and the lower portion of water called the middle, the heavens, you can see how that's sort of parallel to Tiamat being divided and creating two separate spheres. The main difference is that Genesis never deifies the objects of nature. Never gives them personality, never deifies them, never shows them in any sort of rebellion against our omnipotent, transcendent, creative God, but yet, on the contrast, always in submission to this God. Always. Except for man, which we'll get to in chapter 3. Now, some will say, and you'll probably go to college, and if you ever take courses like this, they will tell you that Genesis 1 is merely a version ripped off of the Enuma Elish, this epic creation story of Marduk. But that can't be true for primarily two reasons. First, this epic story of Marduk was never written to explain creation. It's merely a part of the story. The whole point of the story is to elevate Marduk as their chief deity. Creation simply takes one phase in that story. So it was never written for that. The second reason is that if you take the similarities between Genesis and this epic, they are far fewer than the differences between these stories. Okay, one or two or three similarities should not show that one was copied off of the other, especially when there are multiple more differences. Instead, what this shows is that both of these stories came from the same event, only one of them is slightly perverted with the lens of whatever the author wanted to portray. And Genesis seems to be the simplistic account where the Enuma Elish is probably the perverted account. Well, Brandon, why would, why would anybody do that? Why would these old cultures know about creation and then say, well, this is, kind of, this is what happened, yes, but let's twist it a little bit and say Marduk was involved in this and this thing became a god and that thing was a god and there's an epic clash and whoa! Why would they do that? Well, over a year ago, when we were in Romans 1, do you recall what Paul said about pagan culture? 
It's there in Romans 1 verse 25 that Paul says, Man exchanged the truth of God and worshipped the creation rather than the Creator. He knew the truth and he exchanged it saying, we don't want this omnipotent, transcendent, creative God because that implies morality and accountability. So let's just exchange it and and take some of the truth and and come up with the creation and worship the creation through Marduk and all these other gods. That seems far more likely why there's a difference. So, the main reason and thrust of the Genesis narrative is to present a transcendent, omnipotent, creative God in contrast to the pagan mythology that was surrounding and polluting the nation of Israel at the time. Alright? Now, as you go through each day, each day is going to expel one of the many gods that were worshipped. For example, day one, God creates light in contrast to the darkness that was reigning chaotically. This expels, obviously, light can't be a god. God created it. Darkness, no, God has control over that. So it's going to go through each day and dispel what many cultures have worshipped. So let's start. Verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening. There was morning, the first day. By the way, if you need a Bible, <laughs> there's some in the back. A little late for me to say that, but um, if Mark, Mark, you can pass those out. If you need a Bible, you can just keep your hand up. Now, verse 1 in recap is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is telling us what God did. Verse 2 tells us why God did that. Because there was chaos. And verse 3 tells us how God did that. So summary statement, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Chaos. How? And now he breaks it down. First three days, he's forming the chaos into something formed, inhabitable. And we start off, he spells the darkness by saying, let there be light. But Christian, do you recall that as we looked last time, that how verse 2 is the chaos, and how that's the condition of every soul that is born, we're born as children of wrath, enmity against God, we're born in this chaotic state, and when salvation happens, the creative God comes and takes our chaos, and forms us for good works, and fills us with the Holy Spirit, and we're saved, and we have purpose and destiny. That's what happens. We become, as we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, new creations in Jesus. And this, you can draw so many parallels in this narrative with what God does in our lives as new creations. And the first we see here is that when God said, let there be light, and he said, let it be separate from the darkness, this is what God wants from us, is to be children of light. And to be separate from the darkness. It says, you might remember in Romans 13, Paul said, Stop wandering about in the dark deeds of this world and put on the armor of light. Also in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, some of you Monday people know that John there instructs us to walk in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin if we walk in the light. And 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says that God has called us out of the darkness to proclaim the glorious or the glories of His marvelous light. That is our role as new creations. We're pulled out of darkness to walk in the light. Day 2. Verse 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. So, he takes the chaotic waters, and lifts one half, and makes this water thing up above, and water's down, well, in the middle it's called 
the expanse, sky, heaven. Some scholars propose that what happened to this water up above is that it formed this water vapor canopy around the earth, which, if that's true, could explain why there was a different globe thousands of years ago than what appears to be today. For example, you find vegetation in the stomachs of a woolly mammoth up in the Arctic circles. That shows us at one time there were no Arctic circles. And a water canopy, sir, would explain that. Uh, can I ask a question? Oh, sure. Would that... Um, I'm not a scientist, remember. Well, no, like, when, you're, <laughs> when you talk about the Great Flood, doesn't it also refer to the waters coming down from the heavens? And, and I was about to get to that. Okay. This would explain a couple things. One, where did all the water come from in the flood? I mean, today, if you let all the waters that are up there fill, if all of them came down, it would only fill the whole world about three feet deep. Obviously, there was at one time more water above, and that's probably what happened. They came down. Um, it, what, what it would do also is it kind of create a greenhouse effect so that it would keep the earth at an even temperature, nice and humid as well, so that vegetation would grow rapidly and it would be lush. And also, it would, it would um, keep the harmful rays of the sun out so that man lived longer, which would be consistent with the account in Genesis 5, where you see Methuselah living to over 900 years. So, and not to mention, there's probably other reasons he lived longer too, but not for this evening. So that could be what those waters up above were. But what I find absolutely intriguing about day two is that nowhere in this day does God say it was good. After every day of creation, he said, God saw it was good. But not on day two. And I have to wonder why. And the only thing I can think of is that after day one, Sunday, comes day two, Monday. And none of us like Monday. And none of us call it good. Um, although that's probably not why the reason is. I honestly have no idea. Maybe it was the idea of heaven and earth being separated. And God foreknew that man would be separated because of his sin. You can speculate all you want. I, I, just, I just don't know. But what I like about what it shows me is that I can relate to there being not a good day out of this creation week because I have bad days during my week. I can relate to saying it was not good. <laughs> and God knows that. But see, as a Christian, I don't have to be grim about my bad day. I get to grin if I have my eyes in the right place. You see, I'm a pilgrim. I don't have to grin when things are grim, because I'm a pilgrim. My home is heaven. I do not live here on the earth. I'm just passing through. I don't belong here. And so when I have bad days, you know what these bad days only do? They expand the expanse. They expand my hope and expectation of the true place I belong. Never after a good day, am I generally thinking, oh, I can't wait to go to heaven. Like, you know, when Brittany and I started first getting together, you know, oh, excited, like, oh. And you're thinking, don't let the rapture come yet, Lord, not yet. But during a bad day, oh, I can't wait for that glorious day when Jesus Christ glorifies himself on this earth and stomps the rebellious hard-heartedness of man with his breath. I can't wait for that day. That's what bad days do. They expand our hope and expectation for heaven. Now, I want you to consider with me the incredible power it would have taken God to separate these waters. Now, of course, you think God can do anything. But think about this. There is presently, which we think is less water than it was then, there's presently 55, almost 55 trillion tons of water in our atmosphere. 55 trillion tons. And it's just up there floating, which is phenomenal, because water is 773 times heavier than air. So here's God just saying, yeah, defy gravity, all those laws. I'm just going to hold this thing up there. And when the flood comes, he says, oops. <laughs> it's just amazing the raw power to separate this. But this is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. As he died on the cross and, and was put in the tomb and experienced the chaosness of death, 
God separated him from that. He lifted him up and took him up into heaven. And Christian, when your day is grim, you know what you and I can remember? It's that God uses that same power to elevate us up into heaven as well. Huh? I thought heaven's in the future. No, no. Presently, your spirit, your, your, your spiritual position is seated with Christ in heaven as Ephesians teaches us. Chapter 2, listen to this. Verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we're dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Man, when I have one of those it's not good days, it always lifts my spirit to remember that's where I really belong and even now. Jesus considers me so equal with himself that I am seated next to him in heaven. Marvel of marvels that we don't have to be the little groveling slaves and servants for our omnipotent, transcendent, creative God. And we can just say, I'm equal with Jesus. Positionally, the Father sees me as his son, just as Jesus is his son. It's, it's amazing. And I pray we remember this in our bad days, that we can be a witness through these rough days, hey, I can smile. And people say, why do you smile so much? Why are you so happy? Because Jesus has raised me from the death of sin. What a witness that is. Day three, so new creations can smile because their home is in heaven. Day three, verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So these chaotic waters, dry land maybe perhaps emerged from the chaotic waters. You know, raised them up. Um, let them appear. And it was so. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered, he called seas. And God saw it was good. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, according to its kind, which that phrase is detrimental to evolution in and of itself, on the earth. And it was so, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Notice now, in day three, God says it was good twice. Day two admitted it completely. Day three doubled it. Twice. Reaffirmed it. This is interesting. I think because as new creations in Christ, there are two wonderfully creative acts that happen in our life. As seen here. You have these chaotic waters where God creates earth. So, and you know, he just dispelled the darkness by bringing light. And um, the chaotic waters are now bringing form as he separates them. And now earth is rising above these chaotic waters. I like this. Because the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were drowning in the chaotic water. We were chaos. We were drowning in, in the waters of death. Yet, when we had faith in Jesus, Romans 6 says, we were unified with Jesus in such a way that we died with Him and when He rose from the dead, we too rose with Him as newness of life. And, and Romans 6 there talks about baptism being that picture. You go into the water to signify I was dead in my sins and transgressions. I've died with Christ. And you come out of the water saying, I am now arisen as a new creation with Christ. And you go out walking in newness of life. And here is this water. This is chaos water. This bath stuff of the antithesis of God. And up from the water comes this new thing. This land. Just like us, we come out of death to walk in newness of life. And when we believe in Jesus and He pulls us out of death, He resurrects us with Himself. He says, it's good. But He didn't save us from death just so that we can go to heaven. He saved us from death so that, yes, we can go to heaven and 
So that, and first and foremost, I'd say, we glorify Him by bearing fruit in our walk. And after this land came up out of the water, God had the vegetation and the fruit growing and lustfully, that's the word, and abundantly on the land. And then He said again, it is doubly good. That's our purpose. That is why we are pulled out of sin. Not so, oh, yay, grace, party, I'm going to heaven later. <laughs> That's not why He saved us and pulled us out. It was so that we can bear fruit. As Jesus said in John 15, 8, By this, your glory, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. That's how He's glorified. Well, what is fruit? Fruit, I'm sure you guys know, I may thought maybe there'd be some younger Christians here, but fruit is your learning to resemble Christ in your life actions. The seed of the gospel, the seed of His Word is planted in your heart, and when it grows, as normal seeds do, it grows fruit. How does someone know that that tree over there is an apple tree? Well, you don't have to be a botanist and look at the bark and say, definitely smells apple-ish. Or taste it. Mm, no. All I have to do is look at the fruit. It takes a kindergartner to identify the apple tree. The same thing with the world. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take theology to identify a Christian. It just takes, look at them. They look like Jesus. They're Christ-like. That's his purpose for us. So, the first three days, the purpose, God was forming the chaos. It was chaos. Now he's forming. He's giving... A, a habitable is that the word? an inhabitable there you go an inhabitable place and now he's going to fill it with life guys as new creations he's formed us for good works and as we walk in them and as we walk with him he fills us with his spirit to produce life in us and through us so um, let's go to day number four God said, verse 14, Let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be light in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights and the greater light to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night and the stars. Verse 17, God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. He makes the stars, the moon, and the sun. And I love, though, that it says, and the stars. I need more space up here. And the stars. Three basic words in the English Standard Version. Why do I like that? Because, guys, the earth is such a big place that you would expect, in describing the stars, God would have explained the phenomenal fact a little bit better. I mean, think about how many billions of stars there are, how many billions of galaxies there are. Think of how big our universe is. And then he just says, oh yeah, I'm spending all this time on a little creation here, this little planet, this little speck of dust in our universe. Well, everything else out there in the universe, I sum up in three words. And the stars. Moving on. <laughs> Why in the world? When you then go to Exodus and you read for 11 agonizing chapters with detailed descriptions about how to build the tabernacle, a tent made of goat skin and, and wood overlaid with gold. And it was temporary. It's not even in existence anymore. And you, you baffle. And Leviticus has like ten chapters in itself dedicated to this thing. And you sit there and wonder, how does he say, and the stars in only three words, and the tabernacle in over 30 chapters throughout the Bible. This is not how man would write the Bible if man did. <laughs> the answer is because it was relatively easy for God to create. All he had to do was speak. But for God to redeem and atone the sin of sinful man, he had to suffer and he had to die. 
and it shows you what the Bible's about when it says, and the stars, and then for 30 chapters rambles about God's system of atonement for his people. The whole book is about bringing us from chaos to new creations. That's God's heart for man everywhere. And I hope that we don't get too wowed by the spectacular big events in life and oh, the celebrity, this movie is so amazing. We have to go see it. these big events and the sh- praise the Lord, you know, like the Super Bowl and, and like we're so oh, it's so big and eye catching and woo that we forget about the bigger picture that seems so insignificant to most people. In God's view, man, those things, those movies, the entertainment of life, he just and the stars. But when it comes to salvation. He rambles and rambles with love and compassion. That's our God. Well, not to let down your hopes, I was going to tell you about how big our universe is. Consider that it takes a beam of light, which travels 700 million miles per hour. Okay, that's extremely fast. What is it, 186,000 miles per second, speed of light? So it takes a beam of light over 100,000 years just to cover the length of our Milky Way galaxy. But our galaxy is only one out of billions known in our known universe. Oh, I don't get those. Those numbers hurt me. Well, consider it like a sack of papers. The distance from our Earth to the Sun is 93 miles. Uh, 93 million miles. That Scale that down to the width of a sheet of paper now let's see how big the universe is. <laughs> okay, if the thickness of a single sheet of paper represented the distance of the Earth to the Sun, a mere 93 million miles, then to represent the distance to the nearest star, it would require a stack of 71 foot high stack of paper. <laughs> 71 feet high. Um, the diameter of our galaxy would require a stack of paper 310 miles high, and to reach the end of the known universe would take a stack 31 million miles high. I was totally done after the 71 feet high stack. That's just incomprehensible. Or, if the orange represented the sun, and a grain of sand would represent the earth, circling it 30 feet away, so probably, you get the picture 30 feet, Pluto would be another grain of sand 10 city blocks away and the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, would be 1,300 miles from the orange. That's incredible to me. I just don't understand. It just baffles my poor little head to have to think about such... and the stars. (laughs) That's that's the nature of our book. But if we walk, guys, in the light, like day one instructed us. If we walk in the light, you will shine. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned to his disciples and said, and you too are the light of the world. A city set on a hill should not be hidden. It It should be seen. It's the light of the world. So we get our light as the light of the world from him, the true light of the world. As we spend time with Jesus, walking in the light, our face becomes like the face of Moses when he came down the mount, when the people said, oh, his face glows. And people will look at you as you walk in the light with your Savior and say, oh, they shine like the stars. And that too glorifies our Father. For Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And you might feel in a world so big, so small, just like a little speck up there in the sky. But shine brightly as that little speck. Because when you get a bunch of those little specks, what does everyone do on a starry night? Start looking up. And that's what they'll do. They'll start looking up to your Savior. Glorify God by walking in the light. And you'll shine like the moon reflecting light, like a star up there. Glorifying God. Day number 5, verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. 
every living creature with which the waters swarm. I'll get to that in a minute. According to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. All the cute little fishies God made. And everything that swarms in the waters. This is absolutely outrageous. I did not know this. So let me read this for you again. What swarms in our waters? Consider a little drop of normal gutter water. Okay? One drop of ditch water can hold 500 million microscopic creatures. Think about that when you drink your tap water. (laughs) To illustrate how small these are, One teaspoon of water for them is the equivalent to the Atlantic Ocean for us. These guys are tiny. These creatures appear in thousands of species, both herbivorous and carnivorous, and possess mouths, teeth, muscles, nerves, and glands. They're intricately made. Some of these microscopic species have up to 100 to 200 stomachs in these little things with membranes lining them measuring to 150 millionth of an inch. That is a small, 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 small creation. God created those two. And that is incredible. Think of this too. There are so many atoms. You guys know what atoms are, little building blocks of life. There's so many atoms on the tip of a ballpoint pen that if you were to give one of these atoms to a soldier, a full-grown soldier, okay, give one of these atoms on the tip of a ballpoint pen and put one in one soldier's hand, one in another soldier's hand, one in another, okay? You get the picture. Then this is how big this army of soldiers would be. It would take over 20,000 years for those soldiers to march past you. I'm glad I'm not a scientist. I enjoy reading about it instead. One more example, two more actually. If one laid 25 trillion protons, you know this little center part of the atom, so it's even smaller. If one laid 25 trillion protons side by side, it would only measure one inch. 25 trillion protons. And finally, the size of an electron, and you guys know that's a little particle that orbits the, nu- the nucleus, even smaller here. <laughs> the size of an electron is to a speck of dust what a speck of dust is to the Earth. That's big. You might feel, well, definitely big at this point, (laughs) after you felt really small. But what I'm getting at with this is we have such a tendency to focus in life on the little things. And sometimes we go for the big, whoa, Super Bowl, and like, whoa, that movie. You know, we get wowed by the big things, and we forget to glorify God. But we can also get enslaved by the little things. The three hours at work and we're just grinding away, grinding away and we totally forget about the lost soul working next to us. We're so consumed with our needs and our wants that we totally forget about the other people who have needs and wants. And so we get so consumed in this microcosm of life that we forget the purpose of life. What would Jesus want us to do? Well, as we walk in the light, We reflect the light, so we glorify God like the stars in heaven. But, as day two said, as we um, are looking for heaven, remember, the grim day makes us remember that we're pilgrims, and that's our home up there. As we have that perspective, looking to heaven, it, it, it forces us to look away from the smallness of life and to look at God's glorious plan that He has with His kingdom, and it motivates us to do what Jesus said to His disciples when He called them and said, Be ye fishers of men. And there on the fifth day, God created all the fish of the sea, and it's to remind us, He wants us to be fishers of men. 
Let us not get too caught up in the small details of life and remember the fish around us and that God created them too. He wants us to gather them in. We're almost done here. Day 6. Verse 24. We're only doing the first part of day 6 because I'm saving the epic part next week. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Day six, God makes the beast, the wildebeest, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the dinosaurs, and the worms. Did you know, by the way, that there are over 25,500 species of worms? <laughs> that is phenomenal to me. <laughs> I just think of worm. Like, when I think of Noah's Ark, those pathetic little things going on. I just think like, you know, mama and papa worm. That's it. Like, there's 25,000 worms on this ark. <laughs> Probably all slipped through the cracks, but God cares so much about his creation. He made that many worms in case, you know, it's a worm's life or something. You feel metal, <laughs> head buried in the ground. You have more variety, I guess. I don't know, but the beasts, too. <laughs> the beasts. And this makes me think, Christian, of the beasts in this world that we live and see all the time. They're beasts, I call them, because they're slaves to their flesh. The flesh that drives us with the same appetite an animal or a beast has. You look at your worldlings, and you look at a dog show, they're no different. What do you mean? <laughs> well, I went to a dog show, and I know what those dogs are thinking. The guy dogs are going there thinking there's going to be some of the prettiest girl dogs I've ever seen here. And they're all excited to be there. And I kid you not, I turn around at this dog show. Why would I go to those? Yeah, you know, you're wondering. My grandparents do dog shows. So I was there. I turn around. I kid you not. There's this dog humping this other dog it just met. They're just full on doing it in public. They just met. He's singing, you're so hot. And then she starts doing it right there. And I just <laughs> started laughing. I started thinking, oh, Lord, that is what people who live in the flesh do. They think, <laughs> they do what the flesh tells them, and that's what the flesh does. It's a beastly appetite. And we live amongst beasts. We're in a world, the zoo. We wonder why people and kids and are acting like monkeys. It's because we tell them they came from monkeys. and There are beasts everywhere acting like animals. But like on day three, God wants us to bear fruit. When we bear fruit, those beasts are blessed by it. The fruit that you bear might be the only part of Jesus that that bear over there might ever see. And so it's important that we bear fruit, that these beasts can taste and see the goodness of the Lord through your life. Well, those are some of the lessons I saw in Genesis 1 about us being new creations. But let us not forget the purpose. Chaos, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what he did. Why did he do it? Because there was chaos. This chaos was the antithesis of what God is. God is life. God is loving. This chaos was death. It was not love. It was not light. And God prevailed over it to show that He's transcendent, which means He's above human physical experience, and He's separate and apart and above His creation. He's omnipotent, meaning He can do anything, anything. And He's also creative, meaning that He makes stuff happen with pure originality. I don't mean, or like, oh, that's an original song. That's not an original song. He's using music which has been around for millennium. I mean original. Nothing existed. He said, this is what I'll make. You know, we try to fathom heaven. And we think, oh, what's heaven like? Okay, think of the best things on earth. Don't even try. God is a creative God, meaning 
We're confined, because we're not creative in his sense, we're confined to what's already been made. All we know is what we know, what we see, what's created. He's completely outside, transcendent, apart from human physical experience, so he creates stuff that is not even conceived of in our mind. He invents creativity. So heaven is impossible to compare with earthly analogy. We call it streets of gold, but I wonder what John is really trying to say. Because uh, There's really nothing I've ever seen like this. God recreated something new. It's a new heavens and earth. I don't know what to call it. Streets of gold. That's the analogy I can come up with. Sorry, guys. Think about that. God creating something brand new. He's not limited to this earth. This is probably just one of his creative acts he's capable of. Just so that we don't leave with a small view of God. I, I thought for a little bit, there's probably way more, but this is what I thought of earlier this afternoon, of ways that God showed his transcendence, his creativity, and his omnipotence through his creation to us. Alright, consider these. Think about the animals going to the ark. A freak of nature that would be Every animal deciding, migrate to the ark. How did, how did Noah get the lion on the ark? How did he manipulate an elephant to follow him? How did he find all the worms? 25,000 and plus of them. It's baffling. There's no way to explain it other than the God, the creative God, the transcendent, omnipotent God simply said to his creation, which never rebels his command, with the exception of man whom he gave the free will to, he just said, go to the ark, and they went. Our God can do anything. Consider the ten plagues of Moses. Phenomenal freaks of nature that terrified the Egyptians. Consider the parting of the Red Sea. God says, my waters, I made you. Just part for them. We don't need to explain that it was three feet deep, and that's why it parted, because a strong wind came by. Baloney. But fine, take that view. It's more miraculous that God drowned the Egyptians in a kiddie pool. That's my view. <laughs> or the manna falling from heaven for Israel. You think God can't take care of us? They need bread. What are we going to do? <laughs> Rains bread on them. Water comes from a rock. <laughs> are you kidding me? And you look at the 5,000 when Jesus was teaching them. And they said, send them away. We have no food for them. Five loaves of bread. We're going to do. Jesus, I know. I made wheat and all this stuff. And creates bread for them all. Our God is omnipotent. He's transcendent. He's creative. Think of the lion's den. I guarantee you it was the last thing on Daniel's mind as he was thrown into that den. Oh yeah, these lions aren't going to do anything to me. I bet that was the last thing on his mind. Yet God creatively came through and showed Daniel, I do things you're not even expecting. Shut those lions' mouths. Completely changed their nature towards him. Then when the next guy was thrown in, you know the story. It says they ripped them apart before he even hit the ground. They were real lions, in other words. Water into wine baffles me. He didn't just say water into wine like, hey, a little grape juice and no one's looking, you know, fix it up. Think about what wine is. It takes a process. It's fermented. Instantly, I've got this under control, guys. Don't worry. I'm the creative, omnipotent, transcendent God. Oh, no. So, water into wine. Think about Jesus healing the lepers, the lame, and the mute. And why I say this, because look, there's a mute guy, never talked in his life. He heals him. What does he do right there? He talks. Doesn't say he stutters. He talks. He's never talked. Think about how you had to learn to speak. Imagine if I said, speak Hebrew right now. What can you do? Nothing. But he, he heals the person, and he talks a language he's never articulated perfectly. That that's more than just healing someone. Think about the leprosy. They say that it eats away at your flesh and you even lose digits, you lose your nose, you can start to lose part of the flesh of your ear. But when he healed them, you know that they restored their ear and their digits because the law said in Leviticus that when a leper's healed, they were to put blood on the right toe, the right thumb, and the right earlobe. How can you do that if the leper doesn't have an earlobe? He didn't just take the disease away. He restored flesh that was actually missing. Can you imagine the nose just his back? That would be absolutely astonishing. Think of the lame, okay? If you're lame, your muscles are going to go called apathy. Or what is it called apathy? Muscle breakdown? 
close, atrophy. You can't walk just because he says disease is gone. That means there's, the whole leg has to be restructured and re-strengthened, and all that happened right when he said get up and walk. It, amazing, omnipotent, transcendent, creative power of our God. Almost done here. Imagine the great catch of fish the disciples had to bring in. Where did all those fish come? How are they just sitting there? Things that make me go crazy. The two coins in the fish and the mouth of the fish that Jesus said to go draw. Jonah. <laughs> we hear all the time of people being swallowed by wells and spat back out. It's <laughs> just only oh God. And cursing the fig tree. I mean, those are just things I thought of. I'm sure there's hundreds more riding the donkey that has never been ridden amongst a chaotic scene. That doesn't want to happen. And then, now lastly, because this is even more applicational, think of the care God has for his creation. He, Psalm 147.4 says, He names the stars. Billions, hundreds of billions, just in our galaxy, and we have billions of galaxies, and we're finding more stars all the time. He names them. He hears, I said this earlier, Psalm 147.9, He hears young ravens cry. He even hears their cry. He knows when a sparrow dies, and a sparrow is so insignificant it was sold for two small little coins for the Jews. He knows even when they die. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He feeds the birds, Matthew 6. He clothes the lilies, Matthew 6. He collects our tears in a bottle, Psalm 56 verse 8. That is, this God who works in our lives today is this God here in Genesis 1. Transcendent, omnipotent, creative, and whatever Red Sea you're facing, you're not thinking, oh, he's going to part the sea. You're sitting there, what are you going to do? He'll do something so creative you never thought. He'll come through for you. He's a deliverer. He's a provider. He's a savior. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are not the result of some mythology. <laughs> you didn't just overcome some lesser gods, but you are the one and only true God, and you show omnipotent power over everything, and everything is subjected to you. And we want to enjoy the purpose of creation and subject ourselves to you as well. Lord, we expect that you can move so greatly. So we put our faith and trust in you to do so. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.